0: Hello and welcome to the Just Culture Podcast with me, Mary Jane. I'm a registered nurse and the owner of MJD Legal Nurse Consulting. In the medical community, Just Culture refers to this idea that when errors occur, they should be examined closely and without judgment. To be honest, most errors, especially the larger ones, do not happen in a vacuum. So if we truly take a deep look at all the events leading up to an error and the factors at play we can usually spot the weak link in the processes and hopefully prevent future errors from occurring. That's exactly what we'll be doing here in this podcast. Over the course of my career, I've reviewed hundreds of medical related cases as a resource for attorneys across the country. I aim to use that experience as well as my experience as a practicing registered nurse to analyze medical related cases, explore what went wrong, and perhaps learn what we can do in the future to save lives. Hello and welcome to the Just Culture Podcast with me, Mary-Jane Duquette. Today's episode is going to be all about nursing unions. I've been seeing a ton of coverage in the media where nurses are striking and they're unionizing and we're in this battle and... um, I wanted to kind of give my two cents and kind of educate on the purpose of a union, where does it fit, why are nurses fighting to unionize, and maybe even share um some of some of my own opinions on how to make this a little bit um, a little bit better so um A lot of the nursing unions are coming from this parent company, National Nurses United. I can link their about page in the show notes. And they are an organization um, that are really supportive of nurses. It was developed in 2009 and they've been helping different states come together and unionize their their hospitals um, and facilities. Some things that they care about are um, on their website it says to win um, health care justice and accessibility for all um, win national legislature um, to promote comprehensive mandatory nurse to patient staffing ratios modeled on successful california laws sponsored by um, the national nurses united so what they're referring to there is that california was the first state that has laws around staffing ratios in the hospital, how many nurse nurse to patient, um, how many patients one nurse can take care of depending on the specialty. And so, you know, one of the initiatives of a union, and their goal is to have national legislation to mirror that California model. Um, And so they advocate and fight for that. If you are interested in learning more about staffing ratios, and um, a little bit more about the research behind that and the science. I did do an episode. um, I can link that in the show notes as well. So you can kind of go back. I might reference that quite a bit here because it's one of the first things once that it's one of the major points that nurses are fighting for and why we're fighting for unions. And so it might be really helpful to uh, go back and listen to that episode. So you understand what we're talking about. Um, um, so, uh, with that knowledge, we'll uh, we'll move on in this episode. Um, another thing that the Nurses United uh, fights for is protections in, in workplace um, against violence on staff, uh, prevention through collective bargaining agreements, regulations and legislation. Um, overall, like a um, modeled on the California's 2014 landmark workplace violence prevention bill. Um, I have not covered that yet. I could cover that um, in workplace violence in the future. Uh, You know, it comes down to if you're a police officer and you're trying to arrest someone and they turn around and punch you in the face. That person gets an extra charge and that person gets jail time and that person is punished. And I wouldn't say punished. I don't like that word at all. But that person is held accountable, right? Now, if your nurse is trying to get your blood pressure, is trying to get you back in bed, is trying to do any kind of anything and you're unhappy and you punch your nurse in the face, there's nothing, there's no repercussions at all. Um, I remember I was doing home health and I walked into this house and it wasn't my patient. I was covering for another nurse. There was an emergency I had to go and um, and handle because this their primary nurse had the day off. So I added this patient on. I showed up. They had a bunch of dogs roaming around and I could see the dogs going from different windows in the house. So I knew they weren't contained. So I called the family and I said, I can see you haven't contained your dogs. Our policy is that if a home health staff member's in your home, your dogs need to be contained in a, in a space where they can't get to us so that we are safe. And they were like, oh yeah, we always lock them up. Don't worry about it, we're on it. We're locking them up, give us a minute. I'll open the door and you can come in. I said, okay, I sat in my car, I saw the door open. The patient flagged me into the home. I walk up to the home, I walk in the door and without any warning, this dog runs down the stairs jumps on me and bites my arm. Uh, thankfully I live in Maine and the winter is brutal and I had this like really big thick jacket. So all I got was like a lot of swelling and this really huge gnarly bruise. It was an English bulldog. So I wore its teeth print all over my entire left arm. I didn't, you know, didn't break the skin, didn't break any bones. Thank goodness the the patient barely got the dog off me because they're weak and sick and they can't contain their animals. And so, um, so I left and I went to file the report to my manager and they said, um, that it was my fault that the dog bit me. And I, I was like, what you, I told you the story. Do you, do you need clarification? And they said that, um, it doesn't matter. It was my fault and, um, no punishment. They weren't, you know, office policy says that you have to, um, that they can discharge a patient for not following this policy and they blatantly didn't. And I got hurt in the process and the agency didn't, um, they, they didn't even discharge the patient. They just blamed me for it. And I actually got a written warning for being bit by a dog. I know my example is, or the one I gave, is kind of minimal, but at the same time, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, People come into the emergency room, and for whatever reason, uh, maybe, you know, they're sick, they're injured, they're scared, they're whatever, and they, they react. And sometimes they do react violently. I mean, I remember one day a patient was, we call it a cold at my hospital, we called it a code gray. It was a behavioral issue and they were just yelling and throwing things and unsafe. And we were trying to contain the patient. We had to call security up. And while we're waiting for security, the patient had a needle, a syringe. Yeah, it was a syringe. There was no needle attached to it. Thank goodness. But the patient came up to me and started stabbing me with the syringe and, um, Nothing happened. Nothing happened. The security came, we calmed the person down, gave him some medicine to help him calm down. And that was it. Now, we deal with this all the time. And those are just a couple of examples. I have a ton more and I have worse ones. I just don't want to trigger anybody here. But, um, you know, it would be nice to have patients have accountability. Like, I understand if it's somebody who's completely delirious and does not have the capacity to really understand what they're doing. Um, You know, if that was a police officer, they would have to explain that in court versus just giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, Another thing that nursing union kind of stands for is um, secure mandatory health and safety standards in the workplace. Um, this includes um, measures against um, infectious diseases like COVID 19, building on um, precedent setting Ebola guidelines, and regulatory policy and collective bargaining agreements um, to make the practice and to keep not only patients safer, but um, I mean, not only nursing safer, but also the patients. So when it comes to health and safety standards and infectious disease control measures, I mean, we can talk about it being as COVID-19, but it, I mean, it's just really the, the number one, like, example that I have that's most recent. And, you know, it in COVID, you you would see nurses with with trash bags, um, and I realized that we had a we had a PPE shortage. I get it, I get it. Um, I was I was told that I was out working in clinical nursing during um, the pandemic in the early days, and um, I do get it. Uh, but some facilities, including the one I worked at, still limited your PPE after the shortage was was well over. Um, literally all of our personal protective equipment was held in the manager's office behind um, a locked door and you had to ask permission to use anything and um, you could be denied and I was denied. Um, I was denied protective equipment. I was asked to go see patients who were COVID positive and not given any protective equipment to wear to protect myself. Now. I'm a nurse and I do care about myself, but you know what? I will sacrifice myself and take care of another patient. But what, what bothered me and what bothers nurses is that, okay, so we know our, we're putting our life in danger working um, in this COVID-19 era. We don't, we didn't even understand the whole gamut of symptoms that this illness, you know, had at the time. We thought at first it was just cough and shortness of breath. And then all of a sudden we found out our patients with sudden diarrhea, nausea, sore throat, those were also COVID-19. And so we were constantly getting exposed and um, not having any personal protective equipment at all. And as we learned information, and if we were, like, if I was denied protective equipment, um, I was a real stickler about not going because I knew that the next patient I went to see either after or the next day or, or, you know, within the next five days or whatever the incubation period is for that strain of COVID, I could be getting that patient sick and it would be me that did it. And it was because I went into, I exposed myself to COVID and then went into another, another home. A couple of examples I have for you are, I had a patient who was declining from COVID, all of the symptoms in the early stages. So it was the worst one. And I finally had to, um, I agreed, they agreed to call 911. And when the ambulance showed up, I had no mask, no gloves, no nothing. I was in there with nothing. I, thankfully, I didn't, um, I kind of got wind that my agency was rating everybody's um, supplies and taking everything back including your gloves and your uh, masks and your hand sanitizer and so i stored some in my home and i didn't have it all in my trunk so they took everything in my trunk but i had some left behind and that was all i had and when i ran out of that they said oh you just have to um wash your hands in the patient's sink like that's it so i had no no way to protect myself i had been seeing this patient for probably about a month as they were sick, all of the other practitioners that had gone into that home got sick. Half of them tested positive for COVID, half didn't, because that's about the um, accuracy rate of the testing at the time. Um, And when the ambulance showed up, they looked at me and they said, this is COVID. I mean, they came into the home dressed in full PPE. I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you're a millennial, but if you've seen like ET, that's the, that's the thing that I can like compare it to is they were walking in, in the full garb, the breathing machines, you know, the respirator, like the whole nine, the pappers, everything. And so they walk in like the government workers on, on ET And they're like, why are you, who are are you, family member? And I was like, no, I'm the home health nurse. And I'm trying to tell them, you know, the, the spiel and, and the symptoms and why I called. And they, um, literally dragged me out of the home and said, why were you just in there with no protective equipment? That's COVID. And I was like, oh, well, that's, um, what I'm dealing with because that is the policy of the home health agency that I work for. And so the, um, the chief actually called my manager and, um, or they asked for the information to call my manager because uh, they, we needed protective equipment. It wasn't until the state actually made it mandatory that you couldn't go to the grocery store without a mask on that we were actually given one mask a day. And that is what we were allowed to use. So, I mean, that's one example. Um, I have more, you know, a patient who was The CDC called me and said I was exposed because they were a patient just of mine, had just tested positive for COVID. And my manager said, well, they don't have symptoms, so you can just go in and do what you have to do and just just work per usual. And if they have symptoms, then then you can then you can have um, personal protective equipment. I said no. And I refused to go see that patient um, because I knew the next patient that I was going to see had end stage. lung disease and I could have killed them. So it's these situations that we're in all the time. And, and the situations that I'm explaining to you are like really mild compared to, um, as you'll see some of the other, the other issues. So nursing unions, my opinion, are that they are a really great and useful tool to help promote a safe and just healthcare system. Because without nursing unions, what do we have? What leg do we stand on? Really? I mean, many of us work in states. I work in a state where you're an employee at will. So that means that you can get fired because you don't like the sound of my voice. Like you don't even need to give me a reason to fire me. You can just be like, whoop, MJ, off with you. So if I refuse to work Um, in unsafe conditions, if I refuse an unsafe assignment, there is no recourse for me as a nurse to advocate for that. I just have to say, I'm not taking this assignment. It is unsafe. And if my employer doesn't agree with that, then they can fire me. They could just fire me. That's it. Um, A lot of them will fire me for quote, not being a team player. I've been accused of that. Um, But you know, it, it's it's a really hard place to be in as a nurse, especially now. And I say now, I say, I don't say now after the COVID-19 pandemic. I say now as in the 20th century, I say now as in since the birth of nursing, it has been a struggle. I mean, if you think about it, nursing was kind of birthed as, as a, as a dire need in a time of crisis. And you know, we think about Florence Nightingale and Florence Nightingale didn't invent nursing. There were nurses. It just wasn't great nursing care. And it wasn't anything compared to what it was today. Back then, it was the doctor who did the assessing, who did all of the things. um, And then I'm unsure what nursing did, but it was really subpar. And Florence Nightingale came in and advocated and made very, you know, very simple suggestions, how to make things better. And, and we, and we did. Um, but nurses have always been thought of as, um, second to the doctor, especially back in Florence Nightingale's day in that, you know, the doctor is the esteemed one and they prescribe and they give the medications and they do the surgeries and the nurses are like their assistants and since that time nursing has come a long way in that doctors literally can't function without nurses especially in a hospital setting i know the residents at the hospital i worked at had patients 30 50 more than that patients all across an entire level one trauma center all different floors all at different levels of acuity and there's no way that that doctor could do any of their care all the doctors are doing in the hospital are walking into the room and spending maybe five to 15 minutes with the patient that is it and then they're they're moving on and and that's it that's it really so they're really relying on the nurse to be the one to consistently monitor and assess the patient the nurses are really the eyes and ears and the physicality of of caring for people in the hospital, all is on the nurses. And it's the nurse who will notice if you're about to, if your heart's about to stop beating, or if you're about to have a complication. And it's the nurse who will call the doctor and tell them they need to get their butt to the bedside to keep, to keep you from getting any sicker than you are. It's the nurse who's going to look at the lab and say, oh, this patient needs a blood transfusion and call the doctor for it. It's the nurse who's going to say, This patient is confused, they have a fever, their urine smells a little funny and it's the nurse who's going to call the doctor for the urine sample that could very well save that patient's life. The doctor in the 5-10 minutes that they are in the room with the patient, no, there's just just no way they can even pick up on any of that stuff, right? So it's going to come from the nurses. And so nursing is a pivotal and integral part of the healthcare system. Without nurses, the entire system will break down. There'll be nobody to take care of patients, um, and maybe there'll be CNAs, which are which are I'll get the hospitals less expensive, but they can't assess the patients the way that nurses are trained to. So, um, you know, nursing really, really come a long way, like I've said, and to have a union um, to make sure that policies procedures the way that we're treated um the conditions we're working in to make sure that we have somebody to um kind of in our corner to help us um and enforce what we and get what we need right it's about getting what we need and when i say for nurses getting what they need we're not one thing you have to understand is that nurses are not selfish right? We're not out looking like I need to make more money. We're not out looking for, you know, I only want to work four days or I don't want to work long hours. What nurses are fighting for are their patients. And the nurses, the harder they're fighting, it's because they believe and they care so deeply for their patients. Staffing ratios is, yeah, it'll make my life easier if instead of having seven or eight patients on a medical surgical floor. I have the recommended three to four. Um, that does make my life easier. And maybe I can go pee once on a 12 hour shift, at least. Maybe I can, you know, take a moment and eat some crackers if I feel dizzy because I haven't eaten in 16 hours. Um, maybe, um, maybe I'd even get my 30 minute break. Who who knows? Um, that's, That is important to us, but what's really important and what really gets to our heartstrings and what really is behind even my motivation for starting this podcast and having this conversation with you right now is what does a nurse having eight patients instead of four patients, what does that do to the patient care? What kind of situation is that putting the patient in? not about me and what I can and can't do and I can't eat and I can't pee and and I'm tired when I go home. What does that do to the patient? What position is it in? That is a patient who is, I know that I will give my darn best care for a patient. If I have an eight, one nurse to eight patient ratio, I am going to give my best to each and every one of those eight patients and I'm going to do everything in my power. I won't take my lunch break. I won't I, I won't pee until maybe I pee my pants. I don't even know. But the good thing is I won't have time to drink water. So that peeing won't even be a problem. I won't eat. I might get dizzy. I might faint. Maybe they'll give me a cracker. Um, I don't really know. Sugar tablet. Who knows? But I'll get through and I will get do my best. But when I go home at night, I'm going to know I could have done better. I should have done better. And the profession itself will look me in the eyes and say, why didn't you do better? Not recognizing the fact that taking care of four patients versus taking care of eight patients is a lot different. Um, Not to mention that the patients themselves are sicker than even, um, you know, back centuries ago, right? We used to keep people in the hospital long, long, way longer than they are now. You know, you go in for like a, you know, you break your knee and you're in the hospital for like six months. I mean, it, it was like that. Right. And now you're in the hospital, you go have knee surgery, you're out the next day and you're home caring for yourself. And so we're only getting the sickest of the sickest Uh, patients who uh, it was really interesting to see working in a level one trauma center and patients transferred to us from other facilities. And they were coming. I was on a med surge unit and they would come to my med surge unit and I would care for them. They came from the ICU in the other hospital. So they were sick enough to be ICU level at the other hospital, which is like a one-to-one or one-to-two ratio. And they came to me and I, they were at a one-to-five, one-to-six ratio on the med surge floor. It, it's it's just wild. Um, and there's really nothing for us. There's nothing for nurses to do um, to fight, to fight it, right? You're, you just have to accept it. I mean, I was asked to take care of 36 patients in a, in a, um, in an acute rehab facility. And I refused it because there was no way I could do that. And, um, the facility called my, um, uh, the agency that I was working for that sent me there and they said, don't ever send me again because I'm not a team player. And, um, I mean, that doesn't bother me. The only thing that bothered me about that was that there were plenty of nurses working if they were correct. And that they said that, um, nurses you know all the other nurses are fine with that ratio that tells me that there's so many nurses taking unsafe staffing assignments like what are we doing um if you talk to the board of nursing in any state and you tell them um, i've done this i've called and i've talked to other nurses who have called and i've said you know i'm having a really hard time because there's i've you know i want to follow the laws. And the law says that it's my job to decide if my assignment is safe or not. And if it is not safe, it is my job to decline it. But my question was, how do I stay employable if I'm going to consistently follow the laws that govern my nursing license? So, uh, you know, you're put in a pickle between following the laws and doing what you know is right and being employed. And the nursing, uh, the board of nursing, uh, their response back to me was they better not catch me working in an unsafe assignment because they will take my license. And that's the message, right? So all these mixed messages, all these expectations, all these pressures are put on nurses. And what do we have to support us? Nothing. We have nursing unions, which is why so many nurses are fighting for them. Um, You know, I was kind of looking and what kind of spurred this conversation is this article. Uh, There's been a lot of strikes recently in New York City, uh, right before uh, the New York City Nurses Association ratified their union contract in January of 2023, um, earlier this year. And uh prior to that, they were um, on there were nurses like up to seven thousand on strike at major medical facilities in New York because they uh felt so strongly that they wanted their contract signed and the hospital you know they what happens when you get involved with a union is that the union drafts the contract, and the contract is binding that both nursing has to follow and the hospital has to follow and in that contract are nursing um, staffing ratios among other things like nurses get a 30-minute break um, you know whatever else they put in that contract and then you sit at this bargaining table with representatives from the union and the hospital and the, the staff and then you have the representatives from the hospital which are usually like the the administrators and their lawyers And you're sitting there negotiating this contract and the hospital's like, I don't like that part. I don't like that part. I don't like that part. And so there's this like give and take until both parties come to an agreement. And um, both parties were not coming to an agreement. And uh, so the nurses went on strike. The hospital had travel nurses employed. And so that's who kind of ran the hospital. But They did end up getting their contract ratified and everything was good. Well, in May of this year, according to quite a few sources, um, I can link some of the articles that I found. Um, One of the hospitals in New York City, Mount Sinai Hospital, was ordered to pay nurses $127,000 for persistent pattern of understaffing. And this isn't a neo intensive care unit. So this is a NICU. This is like the ICU for infants. So if you have an infant born too early who can't breathe on their own, um, you know, can't eat on their own, have other complications that just happen when babies are born, they require really, really intensive care. One wrong move, you know, um, you know, you have a baby who, when new babies are born, um, especially um, preterm babies who can't breathe on their own, they forget to breathe, right? Because their reflex for breathing isn't fully developed. So when a, a baby in the NICU has stops breathing, you the nurse actually has to manually physically go to the baby and stimulate the baby so that the baby will then take a breath and start breathing again. Now, if a nurse has too many patients, and is our is, you know st- say the nurse has like three patients right so in the nicu the ratio is one nurse to one patient if they're really really um unstable or one nurse to two patients if they're unstable but but um stable for the nicu um it's kind of like um you know you you get they're they're unstable so they're in the nicu but they're not as unstable so un- unstable enough to need one Nurse to one patient. So, but if you have three, let's say I'm in, working in the NICU and I have three babies. All of them are um, preterm. They, you know, they're not breathing on their own. We call it desatting, so their oxygen level is is going down, which is how I would know that my baby needs some stimulation. And I'm in, you know, I see on the monitor one of my baby's stat, stats go down. So I go in. I'm stimulating that baby. While I'm doing that and while I'm waiting for that baby to recover, another baby ha- desats. I What do I do? Do I leave this baby and go to that baby? Well, this baby hasn't fully recovered yet, but that baby isn't going to make it if I don't go stimulate them to have them breathe. So it's really and, and things can change, you know, in, in any ICU setting. Things can change so quickly and so rapidly that it is it's extremely important to give good care and to be able to actually keep these babies alive and thriving to, to have the ratios and this hospital was consistently understaffing and they, they got fined and that's just a way, But you know, before this, the nurses would be like, I'm struggling, I can't do this. And they would just say, Oh, well, oh, well, um, that's just what it is. We're understaffed. We have jobs opening and nobody's applying. Um, That is the feedback from hospitals in that, um, you know, when I was looking up this information, I was seeing a lot of articles from the hospital's viewpoint in that staffing ratios are in the nursing crisis. I'm using air quotes here. um, if, since you can't see me, but, um, you know, this nurse, the idea of a nursing crisis coming about because of COVID and hospitals are financially strained and they just can't hire anyone. And this is all brand new. And they would like you to think that staffing ratios are brand new, but listen, I have been doing some digging for my book and I've been studying Florence Nightingale quite a bit. And, you know, Florence Nightingale she came to nursing um, kind of against her family's will, and she's known as, like, the pioneer of modern-day nursing. And what was really, really interesting is that she was working as a nurse in the 1850s, and uh, she was working in hosp- in hospitals over in, um, I think it was in London. It-, it was in Europe anyway, and so she she's in hospital in the Middlesex hospital. There it is. Um, and so she was working in this hospital and there was a cholera outbreak and the conditions were unsanitary. The disease was spreading rapidly. And so a lot of the principles that we know today, like wash your hands, uh, let's have sunlight in a room. Um, let's, let's, let's get air. Let's get fresh air. Let's circulate the air. Let's keep surfaces clean. Let's launder the, the sheets. Um, let's not let patients sit in their own stool because that might be bad all of those kinds of things. Florence Nightingale was the first one to to speak up and say, you know, well, duh, this fire, this cholera is spreading everywhere because they're like, just people are just laying in it and rolling in it. You know, we, we got to clean it up. We got to, we got to clean the space up. And that's really where her advocacy started. She was just like, what kind of circus did I just walk into? Like, no, this is what we're doing. And, you know, she was regarded pretty highly she ended up moving up the ladder and going into leadership um, and able to spread her ideas um across london and then all of a sudden in 1853 there was a um, a war um that broke out and the um the hospital the army hospital they the injured soldiers were not getting care at all there there weren't any nurses um i, I guess according to a few sources that the nursing care that they were getting was so subpar that they ended up like doing away with all of the nurses and then realized like, Oh my gosh, like we can't take care of these patients without nurses. So they called Florence Nightingale and asked if she could come and she could assemble like a group of nurses and just kind of come in, swoop in and save the day. And you know, she did, she, she came up, um, assembled a team of 34 nurses. And they went to the war and what they found there was like insane. Um, They were warned of the bad conditions, but they just were, were not prepared for what they walked into. Um, You know, there were things like rodents and bugs crawling all over the place. Patients were laying in their own feces on, you know, stretchers in hallways. Uh, The water was contaminated, Um, you know, even the location of the hospital was just over this whole entire, like, just disgusting, contaminated site. Um, Lots of soldiers at the time were dying of infectious diseases like cholera, uh, typhoid fever, um, and they were dying of their injuries. Um, And, you know, really, if you went into these hospitals, you had no hope of getting out because you were going to catch something else. And, you know, she had to come in and and kind of save the day and she did. And, you know, we all attribute her to be kind of like the pioneer of the modern day nurse because she was like the first one to fight for like these conditions are awful. We can do better. Let's do better. And I'm so glad that the conversation didn't stop there and we're still here. You're listening to my podcast because you also feel like right now in this moment, we can do better. Let's do better. Um, and you know, we really, I say this a lot and Florence Nightingale did teach us some tangible things like wash your hands. Don't lay in poop, you know, dirty, dirty feces on a patient, um, on their skin. Probably not a good idea. How about let's have fresh air. Sunlight is good for you. Um, let's, you know, not have rodents in the hospital. Let's not drink contaminated water because that might be bad. Um, yes, very tangible things um, that she taught us, but that's not the real lesson. The real lesson is that she taught us to meet people where they're at and love them through whatever is going on. You know, you show up to a mess, a horrible situation, and do you sit in it and say, well, this is just what we're dealing with. Or do you say, these people deserve more. I'm going to give them more. Let's make this better. Let's give the best care. Let's improve. Let's just wash our hands. Let's wash our patients. Let's get the rats out of here. Let's give them clean drinking water. Like, let's just give them the basic necessities and let's love them into healing. And that's what we're still doing today. Except... They don't listen to us like they did back in Florence Nightingale's day. The nurses who are listened to are the ones who have like a really great middle manager. I, I talked about there being two sides to to healthcare. So there's like the administrator side, the finance guys, the people who sit in the office and make decisions, and then there's the staff which are the nursing, the doctors, the CNAs, the janitors, the housekeepers, um, the administrative staff who check you in and, and do your paperwork and bill your insurance that you know there, there's us in them and in between that are the middle managers so that's the the nursing director that's your clinical manager that is your go-between so yes they are there to you know when you work with a good middle manager they are there to uphold you to the highest standard of nursing that you that you can that you can have so let's push you to be a better nurse Let's not um, let's not sit with the status quo. Right. Just because it's been done before this way. Always. Let's 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 break that pattern. Let's do better. Let's get better. And, you know, they'll also push you to that. But at the same time, a really good middle management nurse will be like this. These conditions like these nurses are legit doing the best that they can. And with the conditions that they're given. If you want better and you need them to do better, you're going to have to give them some resources for them to get better. And they will be the ones to advocate up the chain to the administrators for you to get you the resources that you need. Otherwise, they're just told, you know, do more, do more, do more. You know, you're having a lot of falls. You're having a lot of falls on your unit. Do something about it. And the middle manager can do one of two things. They can chastise the staff for having a lot of falls and rounding on their patients more and being more responsive to call bells and alarms and two hour timing, um, two hour toileting and all of, and all of those things. Or they can assess the situation to say, do my staff have enough resources to be able to follow the standard of care to, to, to prevent falls? And if the answer is no, then they go back up the chain and they say, well, there's falls because, of this reason, this reason, and this reason, and we need to do something about that. And also having um, the answer to what do we do about that? How do we fix that? What resources do you need? What do you need us to do from the top down? Um, that's a good middle manager, except nowadays you get a mix. I've seen a mix of both. I've worked with a great manager who will fight to the map for you um, to, to the point, probably to their detriment, and they would be in tears because they know you're doing you know they know their staff is doing their best and they know their staff needs more resources and they're they're fighting so hard for it and then you have the other ones who will just turn around and say i don't care if you don't have the resources just work harder um and you know we just really the point is we all need a way to work together but until then Right. Until we have that perfect harmony where, you know, the, the upper management really understands what the staff on the front line are going through. Until the upper management and the administrators really understand that patient centered care starts with them. It starts with the CEO of the hospital. It starts with the owner of the hospital. It starts with the owner of the parent company that owns the parent company that owns that hospital. Right. It starts with them. And as it goes down the chain to every single person, that patient-centered care amplifies and it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger. Because what you're doing is the top management will shed the love and resources that the next chain of command needs. And then that will go down the line and down the line and down the line. And when it gets to the patient, the patient can feel it. The patient will be getting the best care that they need because the staff at the front line have the resources that they need. The staffing ratio is what it needs to be for them to give good care for their patients. You know, when I was in nursing school, I was taught things like how to meditate with my patients, how um, different uh, pain management modalities like distraction, visualization, um, Spirituality and all kinds of other tools besides just let me give a med. Oh, you're having pain. You're having a headache. Let's just give you a med. Oh, your 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 surgical wound hurts. Let's give you a med. Oh, you're having chemo. Well, I'm just gonna give you your chemo. And but I'm not using all the tools that I was taught. Like yeah, I'll give you the chemo. But then you have to sit here for an hour and a half. How about I teach you how to visualize healing that cancer? And use and use that tool while you're sitting there for the hour getting your chemo. Why don't I teach you that? Because then your healing is going to be even more powerful than just with that medicine. All nurses are taught that. But we are not we don't have the time to to sit with patients and and educate them and and do the work with them. So, you know, it's in a perfect world, we would in a perfect world. I think I just described it for you. That would happen. But as you can see from Florence Nightingale's day back in the 1800s, the staffing crisis, right? The nursing crisis was in full effect. When I first started as a nurse, we were short. They were offering incentives. You know, you could get 200 bucks bonus if you wanted to pick up an extra shift plus your overtime. Like you could sell your soul straight to the devil and work overtime and help the hospital out. The nursing shortage and staffing crisis is not new. It's not new. It's not due to COVID. It's not extra straining times. This has been going on since the birth of nursing and probably even before. So on unions, look what unions can do for us. Look what unions can be. Do I think I mean i'm sad that it has to come to this that does make me very sad it does make me very sad that we have to have unions we have to have this organization that is dedicated to fighting for nurses so if nurses are constantly saying we're understaffed we're not able to give safe care we need help and they're not responded to then they have to go to an outside organization who is there to fight for them and the nursing unions will fight and they got the you know they they got the fine for this NICU, um, but that makes me so sad. it makes me so sad because that hospital should want to give their babies the best care they should want to give their babies safe care, maybe not even the best care, but how about just safe care? Let's just start with safe and then we can work on being the best later, right Let's work on being safe, let's work on giving safe care, let's work on doing no harm, and then we can work on getting better. But these nurses, they weren't heard, they weren't seen until they got a union and then the union stepped in. And um, I don't, I mean, we don't have enough time to find out if the if the unit is now fully staffed or anything like that, um, and how the ratios are, I, I really don't know. But, um, you know, they were held accountable and they will be held accountable again. Um, But it does make me sad that we had to resort to that and we could not work together to give safe care. Um, And this is going on all over the United States. And I know I talk hospital a lot, but, you know, nursing home, nursing home is one of the worst offenders to this. So um, if you're working um, in in the nursing home world, um, definitely keep that in mind. And I don't, I don't know if there's nursing unions um, that work in nursing homes. I mostly nowadays you just hear about them in hospitals, but I would not be surprised if in the near future, you start seeing nursing homes um, unionizing as well, if they aren't already. It just might not be on my radar, so full disclosure there. And another thing that makes me sad about nursing unions is that they're for the nurses in the hospital, but there are so many other staff members that could benefit from this type of advocacy that really aren't protected under, um, under that union. So, you know, you're talking about your doctors, so surgeons, you know, being forced to do work shorthanded and they have to do more surgeries than they should. I'm talking about residents working hundreds of hours in a row without a break, um, without sleep, um, even. I'm talking about, uh, the physical therapists and occupational therapists that are held to these really tight, strict time constraints and meeting all of these expectations and trying to give safe care and still make everybody happy. I'm talking about the um, the kitchen workers, the cafeteria workers. I'm talking about the um, the housekeepers. You know, are we keeping our housekeepers as safe as we can? if They have to go in the rooms. For whatever illness is in there clean it right so i feel like getting a union fighting for these rule or fighting for these um, staffing ratios and guidelines is a great beginning Um, i feel like we're starting to make a difference Um, i really wish it wouldn't come to this but i do support unions i to make unions better i feel like In the contracts and what I did not see in the contract uh, from the hospital that I worked at that I would have liked to see is something along the lines of The nurses will have the support that they need and really defining what that is because then I feel like that is a way to protect other um, You know this the certified nursing assistants the physical therapists doctors and you could really encompass them into your nursing contracts. I know a lot of this stuff is new and it's your first contract and you got to do what you got to do for safe health care. Um, but in the future, uh, finding some way to include that in because I feel like, you know, even if I have a one person, one nurse to four patient ratio, I and I don't have a, a CNA or I can't I don't have a doctor because the doctors are, you know, doctors are, are spread thin and I don't have anybody to come if my or place the orders if my patient needs blood, right? I have to wait and, uh, that can be critical. That can be life, life threatening. Um, or the, you know, the doctor's too busy and they can't come to the bedside to see my patient right away. Who's declining. That's unsafe as well. Um, and so we do, we have so much work to do, but I feel like we're on the right track. Um, and you know, I hope, I hope this was informative. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you um, did enjoy it, feel free to share it with your um, colleagues, uh, with your friends. I would really appreciate that. You know, the more people that these messages get to, the safer healthcare will be and the better off we will all be because one day, one day, we will all be patients. And that's what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for you, fighting for your Nana fighting for my nana, um, fighting for all the mamas giving birth to babies, fighting for the babies, uh, and uh, we're going to be more powerful if we fight together. So until next time.